There we were, sitting upright in the South Atlantic with the whole rig all around our ears. There's a, a lot of letting down the nation, letting down your family, not being able to win the race. I remember a couple of weeks after we dropped the rig, one night I broke myself into tears because the emotion had built up and built up and, and suddenly uh, the, the um, feeling of hopelessness, I think, gathered and I just, for half an hour, broke down. But a day later we worked out that we uh, had done the double, the handicap and the line honours. But the best thing of the whole lot, I bought a raffle ticket in Sydney at the CYC, we won 500 cans of Foster's beer. Keith Chapman on all this, he put a big broom up the mast, put a halley tight up the broom at the top of the mast because we had the clean sweep, you know, he's won everything. magnificent boat and you could just feel it stretch out on these long everlasting southern ocean swells. You come down one swell and it could be a quarter of a mile long and then you just go up the other one. You just have total control. Get up into the top brow and you look over the hill and there was another big paddock of blue below you and just keep on going up the hill and then down the hill again and you'd flick over to another wave like a surf would just flick over and catch another big swell going down. New Zealand has a proud tradition in the round the world race, and a lot of that started with Sir Ramco New Zealand in the early 1980s, the first New Zealand flag boat to compete in the gruelling event. It was a campaign headed up by Sir Peter Blake, and something that captured the imagination of Kiwis everywhere. But disaster struck on that first leg of the race, when the boat's mast came down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean as the team were vying for the lead. It was a devastating blow for the crew, including Simon Gundry, who is today's guest on Broadreach Radio. Simon details what happened that day when the mast came down and how the crew rallied to sail 4,000 miles under jury rig to complete the leg, but also describes the inescapable feeling on board that they had let the nation down. He also talks about their epic battles with the crew on flyer and subsequent legs, including when they had their rivals in sight for 10 of the 24 days across the Southern Ocean to Cape Horn. And he also provides an insight into Peter Blake, from his unorthodox approach to crew selection, to his recognition of the value of media to build support for Ceramco. This interview was good fun. Simon is one of the characters of New Zealand sailing and talks about the imaginary animals he had on board his love of reciting poetry, Harry managed to pull a team of yachties together to play in a rugby sevens tournament while in port in Argentina, and the after effects of one of their annual mass falling down parties. He's a terrific storyteller who was able to give a detailed insight into that 1981-82 Whitbread Round the World race and a campaign that changed Kiwi yachting. I hope you enjoy. It's my great pleasure to welcome Simon Gundry to Broadreach Radio. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's lovely having you here in Devonport for the afternoon. Well, it's good to be here, and it's good to see you've still got the signature moustache. Uh, how long has that been uh, on, on a fixture for now? I think it was grown on the year of Woodstock, which would have been 1969. 
Mm. The no summer one, of Woodstock. No one's ever offered uh, some money for charity for you to... to I have had a couple of offers over the years, but I sort of turned them down. Yeah. So next month signals the 40th anniversary of what is called the Mast Falling Down Party. It's been held every year on the same day, uh, September 21, to mark the day when Ceramco New Zealand was dismasted during that first leg of the Whitbread Round the World yacht race that year. What is so special about that event? I think, Michael, we got together on the first one just to say a year ago we broke our masts. And then our team was so tight, the Ceramco team crew was so tight that we wanted to make a yearly get-together. And so we thought, well, let's have a mask falling down party every year, thinking it might last for five years, if. But it's lasted for 40 years, almost. And it's just a great time to get together with the boys and the flyer boys and other guys from New Zealand who have done the Round the World Yacht Race and uh, just have a bit of a get-together. We, we agree now it's a lot better than going to a funeral. Well, there's been some memorable uh, happenings, I guess, at these parties. And you've said that these affairs have mellowed over the years, but on one occasion, renovations started early at Keith Chapman's house. What happened there? Keith Chapman wanted to do a renovation on his house on September the 21st, we were there, and I happened to have a chainsaw in the back of my pickup truck. So after a couple of rum and cokes, we decided to demolish the front of his house to save building costs. And the local constabulary came twice during the evening thinking that we were a bunch of lunatics and they left and by two o'clock in the morning we had most of the house off, chainsawed up and uh, it was a pretty cool party. And Keith was happy still the morning after? Keith was extremely happy, Victoria's wife wasn't so happy but uh, that was it, too late. What, let, let's backtrack though, what do you remember about September 21, 1981? What I remember, and it's still very vivid in my brain, is we were heading towards Cape Town in a nice moderate sea with a reef in the mainsail and a number two jenica on. I was, I, was, I was half asleep in my bunk and I was looking, well, I was just waking up looking at Peter who was in the nav station. It was about half past 12, half past one in the afternoon. It was about to change watch or have lunch and then change watch. And there was an almighty crack, and the boat just came upright. And uh, Peter said, "Ah, oh, Christ, not again." And um, then I heard some, you know, the boys up top, and within half a minute, we we're all up top, looking at the situation. Beautiful sea breeze that was out there, and a few gulls around, and uh, there we were, sitting upright in the South Atlantic, just past the equator with the whole rig all around our ears. What was that sight like to see? You know, What sort of emotions were swirling around on board after? I don't think there were too many emotions during that, the rest of that day because we were so busy getting things back on board, retrieving stuff that we knew that could, we could use for a jury rig. Um, sat down, we had a cup of tea, which was always Peter's good way of sort of mellowing. Once we got things back on board, the boat was just bobbing around. Everything was secure, we had a cup of tea, and then the brainstorming coming out, started coming out, Keith Chapman and Owen Rutter and Peter, Jeff Stagg, what we could do with what we had left over and um, how we could put it together. 
make a decision of what we were going to do. And three three scenarios came out from Peter. We're going to go to Monrovia to um, get another spa flown there and maybe fuel up, go to Ascension Island, fuel up and motor to Cape Town or the third one, get the jury rig up and see what we could do with it. And it was just a no-brainer for everybody. We're going to build a jury rig and sail to Cape Town. 4,000 miles. 4,000 miles, yeah. Peter did say in his book um, on that race, Blake Odyssey, that the emotions did come out and there were barely a dry eye at, at times, it, and that it had kind of felt like you'd let the nation down. Why did, why well, did you feel that? I'll tell you why, Michael, why we thought we let the nation down. Because after winning the Sydney Hobart race in 1980, doing it on the double, almost breaking the record, then coming back to New Zealand and doing a wonderful tour around New Zealand, raising money for Saramka New Zealand to participate in the Around the World Yacht Race, and so many thousands of people coming through the boat and telling them what, what our plans were. And uh, The summer of 81 was a strange one because it was just straight after the um, 81 Springbok Tour, which divided the country, hugely divided the country. And then the New Zealand football team, was coming on for the for the Football World Cup and Ceramica New Zealand winning the Sydney Hobart race um, it was a um, pretty pretty strange times in the country so you feel like you've you've let people down you've got 25 days of sailing still to get to Cape Town. You know, what was life like on board for those 25 days? Well, those 25 days, the first thing we had to do was work out how much food we had left on board because we, we uh, provisioned the boat for about 35 days at sea. So Paul von Zielinski, our cook, had to make a list of food, what we had, and uh, how much we had a water maker on board, which was fine, how much fuel we had just in case we had to start motoring and uh, split ourselves into five watches of two with a cook off watch and Blakey off watch. He'd be doing his part of the jobs and we would just be doing a, I think it was a two hour on and six hour off watch system, which was a lot of time you had to think about things. Um, one of the funniest stories was um, we had exactly 24 packets of biscuits when we dropped the mast. And the first thing we did, I did, was list all the biscuits, 1 to 24, and then put all the numbers in a hat and then get everyone to draw out two numbers and they could have the biscuits. So some of the guys ended up with two packets of lovely chocolate biscuits and some ended up with some wafers. So that was a pretty funny time. And John Newton, who got the two packets of chocolate biscuits, went immediately to the front of the boat and sat there and ate them full two packets of biscuits so he wouldn't have to worry about the problem anymore. Didn't, didn't trust you guys, huh? Didn't, didn't trust our guys to steal them off him, no. no. But you said there were a lot of time to sort of think. Was there a lot of time to think about what might have been because, you know, you've been running so well with Flyer at that stage? Yeah. There's a, a lot of letting down the nation, letting down your family, not being able to win the race. I remember a couple of weeks after we dropped the rig, one night I broke myself into tears. Because the emotion had built up and built up and, and suddenly uh, the the um, feeling of hopelessness, I think, gathered. And I just, for half an hour, broke down. I just, Yeah, it was a um, pretty strange, surreal um, 
27 odd days that we ran under that jury rig. I think all in all we were at sea for about 49 days. That's right. Something like that. And um, But all the time we were trying to tweak the boat, make it go faster. At one night we had to actually um, reef the, um, the jury rig because we were sort of out of control with it. And also every day, because of the the construction of the rig, we had to um, check it all. Things weren't going to fall down again. You know, we had the mast sitting on Paul Vozelinski's our cook's um, breadboard, so the aluminium wouldn't grind into the aluminium. Um, so every day there was something to do, cleaning the boat. I think we dragged a fishing line to try and get some fish, and uh, people writing their own personal logs. Reading books um, seemed to fill the time in quite nicely. Well, you made actually decent progress at times. I think there was one day, the third day after the rig came down, you completed 209 miles, which was pretty comparable we did, to I'm some sure, of the other boats. On I'm the fleet. sure we did a 240-mile, 24-hour run, averaging 10 knots for a day. I think if you looked at the books, so one day we did that. Anyway, the boat just tuned along beautifully because we took the old clipper route. We went down to Tristan de Kuna Island where the clipper boats used to go to South Africa. Well, all the other boats were beating. They were hard on the wind to Cape Town, which was the quickest way to go. And we had the back of our mind, maybe they might get stuck, maybe we're coming around the outside and we might just win the leg. We didn't really know. But it was always a story that New Zealand yachting is good at how to make the boat go faster. And every day it was that, how to make Ceramica New Zealand go faster under jury rig. So how often did you get a skid, uh, you know, about how you were progressing against the rest of the fleet? You're testing my memory now, Michael, but I think every three days or something we'd find out where other boats were, not like the modern races where the boys know where they are every four hours. But I think we had to, we had to call into race headquarters through Portisette Radio and give our position. And there was a, um, yeah, that's how we did it, really, yeah. So you eventually made it to Cape Town after 49 days at sea. Yeah. What was that like coming into port? Because uh, Digby Taylor, who skippered the other New Zealand flagged entry in that race, Outward Bound, he came out to meet you and yes. apparently you received a rapturous welcome from the locals. We arrived, I think, very early in the evening and a lot of, a lot of the yachtsmen who had got to know um, before the race started, because we were in England, a full couple of months before we started the race. So we got to know the little town of Hamble, which is on the Southampton Waterway. A lot of the boats were um, based there before the race, and a lot of the crews had houses there, they'd train, and they would have a meet up with them for a beer every now and again and get to know new people. And those people we met then have become lifelong friends. The French, the Dutch, the New Zealanders on flyer, a few of them I never knew. We're now lifelong friends, people like John Vitale, Joey Allen, Earl Williams, George Henley, Grant Dalton. Um, lifelong friends from that race. And um, when we arrived in Cape Town, a lot of them came out to welcome us. And um, in those days, we lived on the boat. We lived on, we didn't have hotel rooms. We couldn't afford hotel rooms. I think the only boat that had hotel rooms, a couple, maybe Charles Heidsick, our flyer, but they weren't magnificent hotels, they were just DOS houses. Well, we, we lived on Ceramco, 
because the budget didn't extend to giving us a nice room with a high at each. So a few of the uh, emotions came out again when you when you finally got no, there? No, not really, Michael, because we were now busy. The new mast had arrived, uh, Terry Gillespie, who was a rigger from Auckland, and Jimmy Lidgard, who made the sails for Ceramica, Lidgard sails. They had arrived from New Zealand with the new mast, and uh, about a day after we arrived, we, we had a garden party on board the boat where everybody had to bring a plant or a, or a, a palm tree or anything, and we invited the whole fleet, all the guys who were around the marinas had come in the garden party. We would have had maybe a hundred people on Ceramco. The decks got trashed with dirt and plants and topsoil out of, out of um, pot plants. Had a great party. And the next day we washed the boat down beautifully, removed the mast and started putting the new mast in. So we had a lot of work. We arrived there a full ten days maybe 12 days after the last of the fleet. So we were busy. We'd think we'd have provisioned the boat because all the sails we'd cut down, we now had to re-put up because we'd cut down a lot of sails for the jury rig. We had to put those sails back into working condition, get the mast in, go sailing to check everything. So every day was busy. We well, sort of touched on a little bit about some of the background. So it's probably quite a good time now just to backtrack a little bit um, to sort of look at the origins of the campaign because as you've said it's, it's one that grabbed the attention of the New Zealand public. So Peter Blake had already done two, uh, the first two Whitbread races and in the second in 1970-78 it stopped in Auckland for the first time. Um, I mean your place here it overlooks Auckland Harbour but uh, you know I think you grew up in the region but do you remember you know, what that race was like and did it spark something in you? I went to Australia in 1973, the summer of 74, when the first Whitbread Round the World race stopped over in Sydney. And I looked down at these boats and I thought, oh my God, look at these. They're racing around the world. And I'd read, I'd read Robin Knox Johnson, um, Francis Chichester books of uh, Knox Johnson sailing around in Sayula. Um, to be the first man to go around the world non-stop, averaging three and a half knots. So I read these books and I looked at the fleet and I said, this is something I want to do. And then I had a great privilege of helping elderly Nathan Lawrence, Nathan, take his magnificent 60-foot boat to Europe, a boat called Kaharangi. It was built in 1951 and um, I spent 18 months with Lawrence um, taking the boat through the States and um, through the Panama, through the Caribbean and um, leaving him in Fort Lauderdale before they crossed the Atlantic. So I spent 18 months with Lawrence doing this. And I just got a passion to, to do more. And I think when the Ceramica New Zealand story started to develop, I was sailing with Peter Spencer and a few New Zealand yachties at that stage were Tim Gurr and Ross Blackman and uh, Roy Mason on the Cotton Blossom 5, which at that stage was the biggest Bruce Farr design boat in the world. It was 55 feet, it was huge. It had a wheel instead of a tiller and so many great things about that boat. And we learned to sail that boat pretty well. We won the Wanneray uh, New Amelia race on it very convincingly. We um, had a lot of fun on it and got to develop with a Bruce Farr boat of how to sail them, get get the weight back aft and let it stretch its legs. 
And so I got a passion for that. That was in 78 or 79. And then Peter arrived on Condor after doing the Sydney Hobart race in 79, arrived into New Zealand with his new wife, Pippa. And that's where the whole of the Ceramica New Zealand started to develop what Peter wanted to do. He found the sponsor, Tom Clark, Ceramico Group of Industries, and the whole, the whole campaign started pretty basically as a bit of a dream, and then developed pretty quickly. So there were, so, so Peter invited applications, right? So there were probably about 200 people who put their name forward for 12 spots. That's you know, did you think you had a realistic chance of, of being one of the chosen dozen? I think I told Peter very early on that he wasn't going to go without me. That's pretty bravado. I, uh, he was told by members of the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron take to, not to take me because I was a bit of a larrikin, which maybe I was slightly in those days, and I was a bit rough around the edges. And Peter's answer to that was, we, we need people rough around the edges where we're going, so he might be handy. So I didn't take it for granted at all, Michael, but I really wanted to do the race. I'd do anything to do it. I was self-employed. Unmarried, no children, um, a little house in Devonport, and I knew quite a few of the other guys that applied for the race, including Keith Chapman, my great mate, Don England, Owen Rutter, we all played rugby at the North Shore Rugby Club, senior football all together at some stage, and it was just one of those adventures I wanted to get involved in. I don't care what I was going to do on board or how I was going to do it. and. Uh, I think just the determination of wanting to do it, maybe Peter saw that he's a person that really wants to do this race. And I did. I want to finish it. Had you sort of had much to do with Peter at this stage? You know, what were your impressions of him? Peter and I went to the same grammar school, Tegapeter Grammar. He's a year in front of me. I never knew him at school. Um, really, I hadn't met Peter and really until he arrived on Condor. I knew of him. Um, when he arrived in Condor, I'm saying, um, not in the 77-78 race, but when he arrived back on Condor after doing the Hobart race. I eventually met him then. And there were 200 applicants, I believe, to participate in the race. He knocked that down to 18. He, uh, he knew Don England very well. He knew Don Wright really well, because Don sailed with him on Condor. Don was a rigger, needed for the program, a good rigger, and Don was a good rigger. But apart from that, um, Owen Rutter had sailed with him slightly. Jeff Stagg had never sailed on with him. Jeff Stagg was a very, very fine yachtsman out of Wellington, who had his own campaigns, and really got persuaded to do the race by Tom Clark. And, um, we all sort of got together and, you know, we had plumber, we had school teachers, we had concrete worker, we had a book salesman, we had a cardiologist in Trevor Agnew. And we had a mismatch of, a, a mixed up bunch of people, not mixed up mentally, but mixed up in their own occupations. They all weren't free and fine yachtsmen. I'm not a fine yachtsman. Keith Chapman was a fine yachtsman. Uh, Jeff Stagg was a fine yachtsman. I'm a bit of a um, sort of a uh, getting p 
people together going in the right direction. Um, Offshore I was handy, onshore I was handy. Um, Nothing really upset me. So I I believe I had a fairly good headspace to um, do a race like this, like that. So before that, tw- those twelve were chosen. Though there, w- there was, you found yourself in an intake, a final intake of eighteen, Correct. and you're invited by Blake to go on a tramp with the rest of the finalists to Lake Waikaremarawana. Yes. Um, Blake had sort of wanted to see what people were like when they were put together and perhaps out of their comfort zone. What did you make of that experience? And did you feel like you were constantly we being were judged? Con- constantly being judged. Yes. The um the 18 of us, including Chris Dixon, very young Chris Dixon, and Grant Dalton, four others. Um, we didn't tramp around Lake Waikaramana. Keith Chapman and Jeff Stagg and I ran around with our packs, so we'd be arriving at the huts a good three hours before anybody else, because I don't really like walking in the bush. So I thought, well, as soon as we get there, we just run around and sit at the camp and light a fire and wait for the other guys to catch up. But we had good talks at night time of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. Peter lay down the rules, basically, of, of how his crew was going to work. I don't think Peter would have done the same thing again because it was too hard on the people that missed out. And it was a very hard thing for Peter after getting to know these other members of the crew, like John Ashley, whose son went on to win a gold medal in, in board sailing at the Olympic Games. John, a lovely, lovely man. I, mean, I got told why Petey couldn't do the race. Almost broke his heart. Now, Daltz was the same. Dicko was the same. So that day on the boat, when we all were above the boat and Peter was down below, we had to go down one at a time, either on the boat or off the boat. It was a very, very hard thing for Peter. And in retrospect, he wouldn't have done that again. So you're one of the lucky 12. You gained selection for the team, and you soon joined uh, them for the crew for the 1980 Sydney to Hobart race, Correct. which you won um, both online and handicap. And as you mentioned, you, you had been on course to break the, the, the course mm. record until you sort of ran into some light winds close to the finish line. Yeah. Was it kind of at that point that you realised you might have a bit of a thoroughbred for a boat on your hands? Oh, and indeed. Indeed. What did that do for the crew and the campaign? We went to, we sailed to Sydney. We stayed at the um, CYC, the Cruising Yacht Club of Australia, stayed there, saw all the other boats around us, and this is a brand new New Zealand boat. It was a good looking blue, and those are thoroughbred boat. It's ageless, the hull is ageless, that boat. We came out of Sydney, first around Sydney Heads, we won a coloured television because they were, they were little prizes all the way down. First across Bass Strait, we won something else. We got up the Derwent, finished the race, first on handicap. About a day later, we worked out that we uh, had done the double, the handicap and the line honours. But the best thing of the whole lot, I bought a raffle ticket in Sydney at the CYC. We won 500 cans of Foster's beer. <laughs> so we, Keith Chapman on all this, he put up big broom up the mast, put a halo tight up the broom at the top of the mast because we had the clean sweep, you know, it's won everything. It was just a fantastic um, few days in Hobart and then we sailed back. I had Pete Montgomery on board and Pippa was on board. Bill McCarthy, the broadcaster, was on board. 
and we took a big dive into the Southern Ocean to see how this thing would work out in the Southern, in some roaring 40s. And after about a day getting out of Hobart, we lit the boat up for a couple of days and we were just astounded how well it went because we still had a lot of gear on board, we had colour television on board and 300 cans of fossils probably left over and the boat was full, but it still just scootled. We learned a lot of things too. Learned not to Chinese jibe it in the Southern Ocean. We we were still we hadn't sailed it in such bizarre conditions as the Southern Ocean that we um, first time most of us had been there, and it was an extraordinary couple of days of how quick this thing could go, but how we had to control it, getting all the bodies back on the boat, getting the weight out of the front so the bow would lift up as we scooting down the waves, and we sailed from Hobart into Milford Sound. Yeah, tell me about that, yeah, that experience cool. because well, it's quite notable, really. Yeah. Well, Peter had made arrangements with the immigration and the customs if they could meet us in Milford Sound. He pulled a couple of strings. and So we sailed into Milford Sound. We arrived there very early in the morning. All we could see is a black shroud of coastline and so many fjords, so many inlets, so much. And which one's Milford Sound, we thought? Well, there's a little tiny beacon on Milford Sound and... We finally found it, but but not worrying in the mornings. We were getting there pretty quick, but which sound to go into, we didn't quite know. But we got ourselves into Milford Sound and tied up there by the Milford, the little old wharf at Milford Hotel. Customs came on, immigration came on. Next thing, there were dozens of people there. There were farmers from South Canterbury. There were farmers from from Taihepe, from Taihepe or Timaru. There were there were people that chop it over from Queenstown and their choppers had landed there and just to come down and see the boat. Um, we were selling $500 subscriptions to help pay for the boat. You know, $500 in those days was a lot of money. We probably sold two or 300 of these and a lot of the guys, the farmers of that, bought these subscriptions to help pay for the campaign and t-shirts and teacups and little bits of memorabilia stuff we had to sell to raise money and um, we got a great a great response from from Milford and then we sailed the boat from there up to Nelson and got a bigger welcome uh, arriving there on a Saturday morning with a flotilla of little boats from the um, Nelson Sailing Club and Jeff Stagg was very well known in that part of the world by then because he'd sailed out of um, Port Nicholson for many years on his Whispers of Wellington and Whispers too, so they knew him up there. And the, the more ports we went to, we went to Wellington, then we went up to uh, Napier, and um, had you'd see on board the boat for two dollars. You walk through down the down the companion way, and then up the forward hatch for two dollars. You had thousands of people walk through the boat. You could take your shoes off and walk through the boat and ask questions. And it was a whole six weeks of travelling around the country. We went to Gisborne and then we sailed from there back in Auckland Harbour on, I think, Regatta Day of 1980, 1980, or 1981, yeah, early early 81, we sailed back into Auckland Harbour to a huge, huge flotilla. Because you guys, you know, you were becoming celebrities, so does that kind of put more pressure on? There was a lot of pressure to behave, that's for real. Was that hard? It was hard at times, <laughs> you know. It was hard at times because the boys liked to bear after a week at sea, but we all had to mind our P's and Q's. And it probably gave us a good lesson of how to behave, a few of us. And uh, 
We had great backsells like Pippa Blake was magnificent. She was a fantastic woman. And she had, she's a great person to uh, run things, um, run ideas through or just talk to her. Also Trevor Agnew. Trevor was a leading cardiologist in New Zealand. He's older than we were. He's a very, very old man when we met him. He was nearly 45. You know, this old bugger coming around the world <laughs> with us. It was incredible. But he was a sounding board, Trevor was. Um, if you didn't want to talk to Peter, you talked to Trevor. Well, I, I kind of get the feeling that Peter understood the value of publicity and oh. having people like PJ Montgomery involved, Alan Sefton involved, just w- managed to amplify that message so well. Peter was a dream for the sponsor. Peter always made sure we were in the sponsor's gear. We were um, even little sponsors in those days, people that gave us the batteries, people that gave us the paint, people, you know, we got T-shirts from Epiglass and uh, all sorts of people give us a T-shirt. It's a great, brand-new T-shirt. Make sure you wear them. And um, He was a sponsor's dream. There's no doubting that. So let's just jump ahead a little bit um, to August 29, 80, 1981. So that's the day that the third Whitbread race from Portsmouth um, started, with about 30 boats on the start line. What are your memories of that day? Because from what I can tell, there were massive crowds both on land and out on the water. Well, we started off that day, we were in the Hamble. We had actually been allowed to rent a little house in the Hamble instead of living on board the boat. For the last month before the race, we had a little house on Satchel Lane. It had a um, blue door and it was little tiny rooms, as English houses are, with steps going to more little landings and houses and, and bedrooms and a uh, little tiny kitchen. And 11 of us lived, lived there for a month. So that morning we had to finally clean the house out, get our sea bag together and get to the boat, which was around in, in um, Gosport. And where the race village was, or so-called race village. And we had to get ourselves around there, on board the boat. For the previous three or four days, the boat had been around there, and we'd worked on the boat. Everything was ready. We just could not do more stuff. As against a lot of boats, there was still loading food on, loading sails on, loading gear on at nine o'clock in the morning. I think the race started maybe at one or two o'clock and there were boats still on the marina with just piles and piles of food, sails, uh, equipment, rigging gear, all sorts of stuff weighing down the um, pontoons of the of the marina area. And there's so many people that the pontoons were down virtually flooding because of the weight of people walking up and down in the gear on the pontoon. So we made a really good clean start. We just said goodbye to people, got on board the boat, motored out. And as normal, we'd sit around with a cup of tea and Peter would give a talk of what we're going to be doing for the next 30 days. We're going to be heading down the Bay of Biscay, Cape Finisterre. We're going to be getting into the... Um, um, South uh, North Atlantic lower latitudes across the Atlantic and then the doldrums and then hard on the wind to Cape Town. So we had a bit of a talk for half an hour, uh, organised the watch systems. We already knew what watches, uh, Jeff Stagg was my watch leader and Keith Chapman had the other watch. There were five of us on watch and they would break into start the race and then immediately at, um, at four o'clock, four o'clock, 
we'd go into watch systems where the guys would go down below, have, have a bit of dinner and have a sleep because I knew they were going to be back up at 8 o'clock and then change over at midnight. So we got ourselves into the watch systems, very well prepared. Um, we had a few dramas before um, getting the boat around to Gosport, Portsmouth area. We found a crack in a water tank and we couldn't hold fresh water in the boat. So we had to put a desalinator on very quickly. Jeff Stagg was was the driving force behind that. Also, previously, a couple of weeks when we painted the bottom of the boat ready to go, Epiglass called in the middle of the night to Peter and told him they had delivered the wrong paint. So we had to send off all the anti-fouling that we'd put on and spend another couple of days. Um, we sent it off, I think, during the afternoon and through the night, and Jeff Stagg spray-painted it the next day, so we got out of that one pretty cleanly. But a couple of little mishaps before the start, but we got to the start line in a real good nick. So yeah. with all that preparation, was everyone pretty relaxed or was I feeling nervous because you'd been building up for this for so long? You know, what, what was... Well, we had a drama. We had a drama about a month before that. We had a week, week off, a weekend off, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, off. Peter gave us time off, go and do what you want to do. I went up to London because of the royal wedding. Charles Diana's wedding. So I went up to London. I think Trevor Andrew may have been up in London too. By the time I got back to the house in Hamble, it was utter shambles. Owen Rutt had been arrested. Jeff Stagg had been arrested for fighting in cows. Um, they were in the high court in cows, fined a thousand pound. Owen Rutter was. The trustees of Ceramco came on board and they're going to send Owen Rutter home. This is just three or four weeks before the race is going to start. And we were a really tight crew by then. And Rutter was heading home. So we had a meeting with the trustees on the boat, off cows. And we stated our case as a crew and Peter stated his case. And then the trustees stated their case as not good image, seeing as a Ceramco New Zealand crew member in court for fighting wasn't exactly for fight, he was just throwing three Englishmen through a plate glass window, so the, the rut of a bit of fiery character he was, he was had an altercation in a bar, walked up the road, these guys followed him to beat him up, and Owen Rutter turned around and made examples of them, by, but they ended up in a plate glass window, which wasn't a good look. Anyway, he was going home, but we had this talk on board the boat, and basically Blackie said, if Owen goes home, we all go home. And the trustees go, oh, well, we've got this boat in England. The race is going to start in three weeks. So it was let off, really. No more misbehaviour, basically. But there was a drama there, a drama with the, with the anti-fouling, a drama with the water tank leaking. So it was almost relief just to get going. It was going. a relief to get going. Finally, we were starting the race. We were sailing down the Solent, out towards Nab Tower, taking the Isle of Wight on our starboard side, going around the mark and heading off down the Atlantic. Twelve of us. No more PR people, no more no more sponsors on board, no more fun sailing, no more. There's just a twelve of us split into two watches of five. Suddenly you're on, on the boat for the first time with a watch. Sydney Hobart, we had like 16 on board. All the racing we did, all the sailing, there's always sponsors. We needed them, so they came sailing. I'm not putting anything in the sponsors, were fantastic. But finally, we're on our own. It's 
It's like the All Blacks finally on their own footy field, right? After all, everything else. And it was a great feeling of relief on our way. So among those 12, like, like life was a bit different than, say, the, the ocean race boats today who just eat um, out of freeze-dried packets. You had a chef on board. Oh, you often cool. had fresh food. You had all this meat and fruit and vegetables. <laughs> it's funny you call Paul Voslinski a chef. He wasn't a chef. He was hardly a cook. That, that's r- renowned throughout the world. He, he did a snow job on Peter. He's a fantastically strong, wonderful man. He's a great seaman, big tough bugger from the, uh, he's a surf lifesaver from Piha and Murawai. A great, great sense of humour, didn't take fools at all, no fools in his life, just wanted to go sailing. As Peter said in his book, Paul cooked some wonderful meals on bad days and bad meals on wonderful days. And We had fresh food for the first week. We pre-cooked a lot of food. Paul and I did that at Papa Blake's mum and dad's house up in Emsworth. So we pre-cooked about maybe 10 days food of stews, of stews, of Irish stews, um, other sorts of stews. And we had dehydrated potato with stew. And for breakfast we had stew warmed up on toast. So we ate pretty well for the first 10 days. But we did have a couple of good steak meals, the fresh steaks on board that we cooked, and salads, And but after a week the, the apples were going a bit off and because getting into the heat, we didn't have big refrigeration, they're all kept up near the bow sections in cardboard boxes. So we ate pretty well for the first week, then we got into the dehydrated slops. Uh, it was made for us by a guy called um, the company was Alliance Meatworks in Southland provided us the um, dehydrated food. It was the first really dehydrated food New Zealand was producing, and it was pretty basic. We had to we had to um, soak the um, stew contents in water for about twelve hours before they started to become anything like meat. Gray Matthias was the guy's name from the Alliance Meat Company. He gave us a lot of food, and we ate dehydrated food from, hopefully, from the first week to the fourth week when we'd arrived in Cape Town, which didn't, never happened. Didn't quite turn out that way. Didn't quite turn out. You, you mentioned earlier that some people thought you a bit of a larrikin, um, but Blake liked that about you. also liked the fact that you, he thought you were immensely strong and enthusiastic, but there were a couple of entries in Blake's book about you I just want to and I just want to highlight a couple of them um, at one point you had an imaginary dog on board and were whistling for him to come to you and at even one point you were even complaining it appeared on the mast on another you'd acquired some livestock which were also on board uh, and you're also known for reciting uh, poetry uh, and current sort of crooning banjo Patterson this was all during the sailing with the jury rig to entertain myself, I believed I had a dog on board and we had a few cattle and sheep and uh, I'd go around the boat while checking things and getting my dog with me. And uh, Richard McAllister was my watch mate, Molly. Great guy, Molly. And uh, we'd cattle on board and would whistle the, the dog in and uh, Peter said he used to just lie in his bunk just chuckling away at us, carrying one up top. It's just little things to amuse yourself. Must have got a bit cramped on board with got all, this all, this, all this cattle on board and horses and 
Um, just little things that we had to amuse ourselves with. The I had a book which I carried with me right throughout my sailing years called The Collected Verses of A.B. Patterson. I just loved his bush poetry. I loved Robert Service poetry and Badger Patterson's and I'd read it and, and verbatimly quote it, usually in bars after a couple of beers and uh, so I had that one book with me on it right around the world race. Still got it here somewhere in the house. Well, but interestingly though, only Ceramco and Outward Bound, the only two crews in that whole race that didn't go through any crew changes. What, why do you think that was? You know, was there ever any tension on board? Kiwis, the banter. The banter got us through. The humour, the banter got us through. You could talk about anything. You weren't allowed to say anything against your mother or sister. Everything else was open. Girlfriends, fiancés, wives, reckon anything. Right, the banter got us through the humour. John Newton's humour, Paul von Zielinski, Chappie, they're all funny people. And it's funny, Michael, we sit here at Marsfield now party, we will be doing that in the next month here at home, and the same jokes, the banter will be there, the biting banter. And that's what got us through. That's what got New Zealand's crews through. We're good at it. Well, we've talked about what happened throughout the rest of that leg. So let's jump through to the second leg, which was from Cape Town to Auckland. You had a new mast in place for this one. Um, and the boat had been designed to excel in the Southern Ocean. But Blake was worried that you might be a little bit gun shy after that dismasting in the first leg. Did you sense any nervousness Blakey, among the guys? Blakey thought we were going to be gun shy. Jeff Stagg wanted to drive it at 150 miles an hour. Jeff Stagg would stand up driving the boat from behind, yelling to Huey, the wind gods, to throw him down another 40 knots, looking backwards on the boat and driving it. And sometimes Peter had to say, come on guys, just, we've got to get there. We've got to get there, because Staggy and Chappie would throw that boat round on their watch to try and beat each other's four-hour runs. At times, just got to temper, be tempted, and Peter did that. Yeah, well, he actually had to give you guys a bit of a dressing down, because um, I think... One 24-hour period, you rattled off 316 miles, which was a Whitbread record at that time. It, it and Blake described it like being on a runaway train, except this one was totally under control. You know, what was it like to be on board when you were totally steaming along? It was absolutely magnificent driving that boat. You know, this is the boats now are doing six or seven hundred miles in a 24-hour run, but that was a first big boat that actually slid along beautifully. Um, uh, sure, you had the um, the Kealoas in America, you had Woodward Passage, but Ceramica in New Zealand downhill would have beaten them hands down. It was a magnificent boat and you could just feel it stretch out on these long, everlasting Southern Ocean swells. You'd come down one swell and it could be a quarter of a mile long and then you just go up the other one, you just took total control, get up into the top brow and you look over the hill and there was another big paddock of blue below you and just keep on going up the hill and then down the hill again and you'd flick over to another wave like a surfboard, just flick over and catch another big swell going down. I remember one night in the Southern Ocean we were doing that with a, with a, with a school of dolphins around us and the dolphins were like, they were like our torpedoes coming at us. They were racing down the way and going under the bow of the boat. All you could see is the phosphorescence. You couldn't see the dolphin. All you could see is the phosphorescence of the the fins as they just came down with us and uh, and then the albatrosses down there were extraordinary um, 
they'd hang right beside you. You're driving the boat at you know, 20 knots or 15 to 20 knots, and the albatross would be just sitting looking at you, just hovering, you know, just a couple of metres away from you. Because what's the strange thing in my land? Now, they were great, great days sailing those things, and, uh, but we were, at the back of our minds, still gun-shy about dropping the rig again. We really were. All the way through, I think, for the rest of the race. We're still feeling well. We don't want to do that again. Mm. Well, you did, um, I guess, you know, crash strike jibe a couple of times, yeah. and, and a couple of Blake wrote in his book were a bit hairy, yeah. you know, as, as you trailed a lot of kit in yep. the water. Mm-hmm. Were you pushing so hard just because you felt like you needed to make up for lost time? Correct. The fly was always just a bit in front of us. It was a big displacement boat, it was 10 feet longer than we were. It's been sailed really well by, by, the, by the flyer crew, who, as I said, are, most of them all become very close friends over the years, those guys. The Dutchmen, the French on board, and the Kiwi guys. But we wanted to get into Auckland first. There's no, doubt, there's no doubting that at all. So we were chasing them the whole way. It was... So intense, actually, that battle with Fly. You reported fake conditions, uh, coordinates rather, mm. one day in the hope that Fly might take the bait and go a, a slightly Correct. different angle. Yeah. And it did almost look like they took it at one stage. Yeah, coming up the coast, yeah, keeping it coming up the coast of New, the west coast of New Zealand, I think that was. Blakey gave a bit of a false um, position that we we're heading in towards the land and we were actually out a lot more. And Flyer, we hoped, would cover us by going in. But it didn't quite happen. I think we might have had a wind change or something. But Blakey was always wanting to sort of play games against Flyer too. So Flyer finished eight and a half hours ahead of you, um, although you did win the leg on handicap. So coming into New Zealand, you encounter the first spotter plane, I think somewhere around about Tutukaka, and then the first escorts from Tiri. Um, Before then, there was a wall of boats uh, at Rangitoto Light. Do you kind of remember that reception coming into Auckland? We picked up a magnificent northerly, northeasterly. We ran down the New Zealand coast, the east coast, I think with a 2.2 spinnaker on and a full main, and we were just cranking it right down the coast. And then we, a few boats came out from Russell, maybe, then Tudikaka and Whangarei Heads and and then we came to Turi, went through Turi Passage, and ahead of us was just an armada of boats, just filling up virtually as far as we could see. Not so much close to Turi, but in towards Rangitoto Light, you could see them. And it would have been about four, three or four in the afternoon, hazy, sort of typical Auckland day when the rain started to come in from the north, a little bit like today, actually. And... Um, we could just see these Amara boats. We had a bit of a dicky spinnaker pole. We had a broke a boom that we had broken the Southern Ocean repaired. We didn't want to be doing too much any jibes if we had to. And the boys were all pretty whooped up getting home. We hadn't been home for friggin' months and months and months. And, you know, a few of us had girlfriends here. A few of the boys might have had boyfriends in those days, but I don't really know. But we had people well, you know, just wanted to get home. And it was an extraordinary afternoon. We came into the Auckland Harbour and we had ringy toted our port side. We came up close to Mission Bay. We had a jibe then and then crossed the finishing line off Iraqi Wharf. We jibed then. It was a lovely jibe. With a, we only had one spinnaker pole, I think. The, the other one 
we had a wreck somewhere. So we couldn't twin pole jive it. We had a end to Anyway. And um, crossed the finishing line, came over Princess Princess Wharf. The fly guys were all there still. And had a huge reception there and went home. It was a pretty cool day. The next day I had to go down and clean the boat. <laughs> Pretty cool send-off too. There were estimated three hundred thousand people came to see you a few weeks later. Um, yeah. You know, were those that arrival and that departure? Was that perhaps Amazing. even the, hi- the highlight of your sailing career? That's a very good question. That highlight of my sailing career. I think the highlight was a whole race. The whole race was a highlight. But that sending off in Auckland on Boxing Day, nineteen eighty-one. Was extraordinary day. It was a beautiful day. It was a lovely, lovely breeze, and there were just everybody in Auckland had a boat was out there that day to farewell the fleet. And a lot of, a lot of the people had got to know, you know, different boats, helping them. And uh, it was just a fantastic farewell. We raced um, out of Auckland. We had to go around the Spirit of Adventure that was moored off Browns Bay, and then go around her, and then head off across towards Channel Islands down the east coast and Cape Horn next stop. Well that was a fairly extraordinary leg as well um, from you went up to across to Cape Horn then up to Mar del Plata in Argentina and yes. you were within sight of Flyer for about 10 of those 24 days. We were. We used to wake up PDC at the VHF and say good morning Connie how are you out there and Connie was the owner of Flyer Dutchman, wonderful Dutchman. He'd come back in his beautiful Dutch accent. Morning, Peter. I can see you over there. And they had this banter for at least 10 days. So we went around Cape Horn within a couple of hours of each other. We could see fly go around Cape Horn. But and, thinking about it, Southern Ocean, this massive body of water, yeah. and you're within sight of them for 10 yeah. out of 24 days. Yeah, did, it, did it almost feel like a match race at it times? Was, it was like a match race. Match, you know, it, was a, it was a classic race. It was a classic leg of a Whitbread, you know, seeing each other so close. Um, getting into Mardel Plata was interesting because we were still living on the boat. Most of the guys were living on it. We were in a, a naval dry dock area. All the boats tied up. We, um, they had a big bear tent there for us. We weren't allowed into the Mardel Plata Yacht Club because that was only for the rich and famous could go in the Yacht Club. We weren't allowed there. So they had a huge bear tent there for us. And by this stage, a lot of the crew were running out of money because, you know, we weren't paid for this thing at all. No one, except the flyer boys, I think were getting a couple of hundred US a week or something to do it. But most of the crews were doing it on their own back, their own money. So we were six weeks in Argentina with virtually no money. We entertained ourselves there. We had... um, a lot of touch rugby going on between all the crews. I'd organised big touch rugby tournaments with the French who loved their rugby and the Dutch and the English on board view the boats, the Irish guys. We'd, we'd, by this stage, we'd, we'd form some really cool friendships that, as I said, live to this day. Um, we'd sit in the beer tent in the afternoons, have a couple of beers and then run out of money for that, so we'd put a few bob together and go and buy one of those big wicker bar- baskets of cheap Argentinian red wine. And we'd cook on board the boats. Um, anything to sort of keep ourselves amused for six weeks, because it was a long time. We'd, uh, three weeks would have been fine there, but six weeks really dragged on. 
How did you source the uh, footy kit, the boots and the, the shirt for that, that tournament? And I think it involved even some national players from the Argentine side. You guys we made got the semi-finals. We got invited by the Mardo Plata Rugby Union to enter a seven-a-side team in their Mardo Plata Sevens. And that included a lot of good players from throughout Argentina. And it was about 24 teams on the two days it was. And our, one of our kits was a Canterbury rugby shirt, a blue and red rugby shirt. So we used those as our jerseys, got a couple of footies. We had four of them to fly, Joe Eleanor Williams, myself, I'm Rudder. Had a couple of guys of Zago who played a lot of rugby at university in South Africa. A couple of French guys who played rugby in the south of France. So we had a very handy seven-a-side team. We made the semi-finals mm. of the Mardel Black Sevens. We would have made the finals, but Keith Chapman missed a kick virtually in front. But at this stage, we were both. We'd been at sea for a long time, and our, our bodies weren't used to running around with the rugby field. But we, we had a lot of fun. And Ch- um, Admiral Charles Williams, who was the overall boss of the Whitbread race, gave us two million pesos to buy beers with, which equivalent to about a hundred US dollars in those days, because the way the the pesos, was it pesos then? I think it was. Um, the whole of the Argentinian economy when we were there was really, really bad. And we travelled a bit around the place. A lot of us went up to Barolochi on the border between Chile and Argentina. We went up there for a weekend by train. And coming back, we could see a bit of a military build-up happening. Trains full of soldiers, trains full of gear. Not thinking anything about it, but we knew a month later what was happening in the world. And it's quite interesting to be in Argentina then, then sail home and see what was happening in England then. But Argentina, we enjoyed it, we enjoyed the stakes there. The, um, a few of the guys found girlfriends. Um, but a lot of us then wanted to get home, get back, finish the race, get the boat cleaned up and head home to get on with our lives. You just, you'd mentioned the fact that um, how close things were. I just want to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned how close things were at the Horn. You're actually about two miles mm. uh, behind Flyer, yep. but then you passed them when you found more breeze before they then retook the lead and finished that leg um, seven hours ahead. Yeah, they stretched you, out. You didn't win that leg on handicap, but you picked up the raw, what's called the Roaring Forties Trophy for the fastest across the Southern Ocean. Correct. You know, after all that you'd been through, was that some sort of consolation for Not you? Not really. Not really. It was the Roaring Forties. We were the fastest boat, but we weren't the fastest boat around the world. That's what we wanted to do. I think a little boat called Morbihan won that leg, a little French boat, about a 50-footer, skippered by Halvard Mabert, who's a great friend of mine now and I had a grandson born a year ago I just saw him recently for the third time and his name is Joseph Thomas Halvard Gundry named after Halvard Mabere which goes to show the friendships have lasted 40 mm. years that's nice mm. so the final leg would take you back to Portsmouth and inevitably was another match race between you and Flyer um, but during that leg, you ended up on starboard tack for pretty much the best part of 27 days. 27 days. What is that like? Reaching up the Atlantic for 27 days. 
Charles Hosset was in charge of the race by then, on handicap. Fly had to give them 96 hours. Flyer was the one that had to beat them by 96 hours, which was reaching up there. Charles Hosset was like a beautiful, big 62-footer reaching boat too. Alan Gabay and his magnificent crew, French crew, became very good friends of ours. Both, I think, shared the same sort of senses of humour. And they they were shoo-in to win the race. But as it worked out, the Azores high turned nasty. Charles Hotsey got on one side of the, the high, which ended up being on the wind for four or five days as flies skirted around the outside and beat them in by a good 96 hours. But it was just another leg. It was 7,000 miles of them reaching up the Atlantic. Must have felt like you were leaning over to, the, yeah. to one side for so long. Yeah, yeah, it was really like all the gear was packed on the starboard side, and we we just reached up the Atlantic. Yeah, got into the the equator, then and then we had a magnificent run into England. We got all the tides right from Land's End right the way through. We had all the flooding tides, just like we were running over the ground at you know, fifteen or sixteen knots, maybe. 12 knots over the water and three, but the tide was pushing us by another four knots. So it's a great end to the race. We finished in the middle of the night. And, uh, so, yeah, you were second on line, but you did win that league we won on that handicap. We won on handicap also, yeah. 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 So overall, you were third on a lapse time uh, for the whole race, uh, despite dismasting during that first leg, yeah. and 11th on handicap. Yeah. How did the team look back on that result? Not with great fondness. No, we still go, God, if only we hadn't dropped the mast. No, true honesty, you know, we did the round the world race, we got 11th. Flyer won it. And they still remind us every time they come for a mastermind now party. Or any time in correspondence with Grant Dalton, there'd be all some snide comment on there. As he's good at it. Just, just talking to someone about it today, though, they felt that campaign was just as important as Steinlager too. We obviously went on to achieve amazing success yeah. a few years later. Do you agree? I agree. I think Blakey's big mistake, maybe, was listening to Tom Clark of the second round of the world with Lion New Zealand. Tom wanted to go for a big, heavy Ron Holland boat, and we all agree that if we'd been given a... a um, 72 foot, 73 foot Bruce Farr boat, um, we would have cleaned the race up on that second round of the race. Peter went back to Bruce Farr for a Steinlager campaign, 89.90, and what did he get? Six legs, mm. six legs, and won the race with a beautiful Farr boat that I see sailing out here every Friday night, and it looks as great as ever. Mm. Beautiful boat. But I guess just that impact that Saramco made and the consciousness, I guess, of New Zealand sailing and the opportunities that sort of came from it for so many other people afterwards. Oh, absolutely. So New Zealand, when I first started looking around the World Boat Race, there's one person in New Zealand that had done the race. Chris Moslem had done it on the first flyer and won the race with Connie. You go under the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squad and there was Chris Moslem. God, that guy did the around the World Race. They go over there, see they go over there, done the round the wall race. You go into the squadron now and there'd be 30 or 40 people have done the round the wall race. But in saying that, there's only a couple of hundred New Zealanders who've ever done the round the wall race. And uh, the friendships that 
I personally have gathered from it, as I said right at the beginning of this, Michael, that there's no one in the world, I'm a great yachtsman, but I'm not a bad organiser of men. I have been doing that for so many years in the concrete construction industry. I know how to um, get the best out of men, I believe. And I was there probably because of a lot of that, just keeping the house clean, make sure the guys were fed on shore, make sure the hire cars or whatever we had were organised, blah, blah, blah. But I was pretty handy around the boat too, but not the greatest yachtsman in the world. That was left for guys like Jeff Stagg. And I could drive a boat pretty well. I could do as best as anybody. But when it came to the technicalities of offshore sailing, I was not bad, but just being a true yachtsman, no. No. Did you think you'd be back after the wind? Did you want to be back for another crack? Of the line New Zealand? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you did get on that? I got on that, I did that whole campaign. I got off in Auckland. At that stage, Margaret had had another son who was very premature. And um, I think she said to me something like, you've got to stop running away to sea with your mates. And this was 1985. Walter Gill and I were working together. We'd been working together since 1969. And it's probably time to knuckle down and go to work because we weren't getting paid for Lion New Zealand. We had a mortgage. We had um, two kids. And it was probably time to come home. And I did. Came home and uh, we settled down in the business. We sort of, Walter Gill and I, decided what where we wanted to go in the business. We were both about 35 then. And the business has boomed since then. Are we still involved in it to this day? 53 years later, we still work together with a big team of guys and a lot of gear and a lot of good contracts. And it's been a lot of fun. That part of my life has been amazing. So following that Lion campaign, yep. so what other sailing did you do? I sailed a lot with Murray Ross on his 40-footer, Satellite Spy. I sailed a lot with Murray. Um... I did the Admiral's Cup with Neville Crichton, with Earl and Joe Allen and a bunch of Owen Rutter. The Admiral's Cup with them. Um, I really didn't do, a, I did a lot of day sailing, but work was important because we suddenly we had five boys in six years, and there was a big family, you know, like five little kids under six. And, you know, it was full on. Yeah. And they had, a, they had a bigger house, needed a bigger house. Suddenly the mortgage rates were 18 or 20%. And uh, we're the tiger by the tail. We're working hard, employing a few people. And um, there's no more time for yachting, really. There's kids who want something to play rugby. They go there on Saturday mornings. And uh, Alan Sefton once said to me, Boyo, you've got to play the piper occasionally. So just come home and play the piper. And he's dead right. How else have you been involved in the sport? You know, Have you had, an, um, I guess, involvement with clubs or administration? In, in sailing? Yeah. I sit on the New Zealand um, Yachting Foundation, which is a really good thing. We're a, we're a trust and we give a lot of money out to um, up-and-coming yachtsmen. We give away a lot of money over the years. I've been there for 10 years with people like Peter Lester and Mike Saunderson and Pete Montgomery, um, uh, John Brown, um, Grant Beck, really cool trust that Sir Tom Clark and Peter Blake set up on the sale of Lion New Zealand. And um, I'm a member of the Devonport Yacht Club. Got my own little 30-foot boat. 
all, the, all my boys and daughter can sail really, really well. Um, pretty well put a lot of time into rugby at the North Shore Rugby Club. And um, just lived a really nice life in Devonport with a lot of good friends. And it goes back to, um, like the other night we had a beer with Barry Mackay and Joe Allen and the Murray Jones just at the local bar down here and just caught up with people. Earl lives in Russell now, so I've got a place in Russell I get up to and spend a lot of time with Earl. And uh, see a lot of my, my own, we had Paul von Zelensky died just recently, which is not a shock to us, but sad. And Trevor Agnew's nearly 90 now. Keith Chapman died after the second round of the world race he did. Peter died, as we all know. So nine of us left now. Uh, a few of the boys have retired. I still work. Don England still works. Owen Rutt has sold his business. Molly McAllister works. But we're all close friends, all of us. You know, was, we've never had any animosity, never had arguments with them. We had, we had, at times we had um, ways of doing things differently. We'd discuss them, but we never had a physical punch-up or really bad verbal stealth-ups at all. Because the humour got to us. There was something... Funny happening. We, we, honestly, Michael, this 40 years later, we're still the closest of mates. So the ocean race is still around, obviously just a different name these days. Yep. Uh, and it's quite different, I guess, in, a, in, in, in the way it looks. These are racing machines and it's, you know, weight is everything. You can't take fresh fruit and vegetables yep. and meat on these things. You know, there's no room for cooks or any semblance of luxury. You know, would you, not to say that you guys weren't pushing hard in the slightest, because oh, yeah, you were yeah. pushing hard. We were but pushing as hard as we could in those days. Would you prefer to do the race today? Or I would, back I would love to it? get on one of those boats for a couple of days and then get off by helicopter. But talking to some of my good footy mates, like Brad Johnstone, who played in the amateur, he played 44 games for the All Blacks, three as captain, he would have swapped any of his time. Buck Shelford's a good mate of mine, North Shore Club. He wouldn't have swapped any of his amateur rugby for the professional era. And likewise with the yachtsman, I believe, we wouldn't have swapped anything for that first round of the world race. That was one great adventure, and it was so much fun. We learned so much out of it, and notably we, we um, made so many great friends out of it. I went back to the Rugby World Cup in, um, in France in 2015, I think it was, and I spent a lot of my time looking up and staying with French friends I'd sail with. I didn't go to one life game of rugby. I watched all the rugby on in little French houses or bars on big screens, catching up with a few good French friends. And I just fend Alan Gabay became a very good friend, the skipper of Charles Heitzig. You know, we mixed with Eric Tabali, one of the great you know, he was a legend in France. He was sailing in that first round of the race. And uh, just so many good people. They've done well in their lives. You know, um, Jeremy Samuels, who was a down-and-out, hopeless friggin' yachtsman, it turned out to be a multi-multi-millionaire property developer in London. And you know, a lot of the boys have done very well in their lives from that first race. And a lot of it, I believe, is um, because of that race, the disciplines and the friendships and the and the learning how to give and take and give and you know give and just bite your tongue a lot. You had to bite your tongue a lot. Don't say it, don't say it, it'll just erupt. Don't say it. Don't say it. Just walk away. 
Well, I'd, I'd really appreciate your time to be able to share your experiences from that first race. Uh, you know, just having read Blake's book in the last um, week or so, you know, it just seemed like a fascinating time. I'm, I'm assuming that you've got a decent worst wipeout ever in there. So um, The worst what... wipeout ever is just so, so still very much in my mind. We're in the Southern Ocean. It was the middle of the night. We Chinese dived the boat under full spinnaker, wiped it out until the spreaders were dropping. We are on the starboard side, was in the water. Um, Staggy, Staggy was driving down to Leward. He was in the water, the life harness on. Doc Agnew and I were on the weather rail. I was hanging off the lifelines, looking down, knowing that I had to get down there to get the sheet off the winch, the spinnaker halyard off the winch, because the spinnaker was flogging and keeping us down. The only way to get the boat back again, I didn't have my life harness on, and we were just flogging in the water. The whole boat was just flogging in probably 20, 30 knots of breeze. So I let go of the lifeline and fell right across the boat into the water and managed to get across, grab the, 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 um, the halyard off the south tailor and get it off and then let it run. Thank Christ there wasn't a knot in it somewhere. And it just ran out and the whole boat just got up and shook itself off like a duck coming out of the water. Shook itself off and just, by that stage the boys were down from below and we just tidied up the boat and sat there for a little while and nothing was broken. Mast was still up, boom was still there. Spinnaker hadn't ripped, mainsail was in one piece. We shook ourselves off for half an hour, got a little kite on and kept on going. But that was the worst wipeout. Obviously, thing, a lot could have gone wrong there. A lot could have gone wrong. Were there ever times when you were thinking, holy shit, you know, this could be it? Uh, you know, were you ever scared, I guess, for your safety? Not scared for my safety, very, very weary of what the surroundings were like. At some stages, you'd always be really, really cautious because um, something's going to go wrong sometimes. The most, when things went wrong is the times you felt most comfortable sailing. If you get too comfortable, it's, it's going to bite you. The ocean's going to bite you if you take it for granted. It seems to have a sense of these guys are too comfortable. But that night was, was Staggy down there in the water trying to hang onto the wheel, get the thing back up. But there's no way in the world he could have got it because that spinnaker was full of, full of were just pinning us down. That was the worst one. We had a few, but that was the worst. I'm guessing that's probably going to be a story that comes out next month at the the Mars. Oh Town yeah, party. no, no they be fucking stories. These guys are vicious. They they, they arrive here. They're Dalton and buddy Joe Allen and Earl George Henley. They're vicious. The humour's vicious. Well, I hope the party goes well, and I hope there are a, a number of parties uh, in subsequent years as yeah, well. Yeah, I hope so, Michael, too. But um, yeah, Look, thank you so much for your time. really appreciate you um, joining us on Broadreach Radio. Thank you. Thank you for coming to Devonport on a wet northerly. And uh, it's quite nice looking at the book today for the first time, looking at a few of the photographs, and uh, the boys haven't aged that well. <laughs> We're still here. It's uh, the battle of life. It's the battle of life, yeah, I know. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. I'm guessing that if you've got this far, you've enjoyed the episode. 
so it'd be great if you could share it on social media and click follow on your podcast app. It's the best way to grow the audience. As always, drop me a line at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz if you've got any feedback or suggestions. And look out for the next podcast dropping soon. Bye.